Welcome to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a quick and informative analysis of today's top issues from University of Michigan faculty. My name is Matthew Countryman. I'm an associate professor of Afro-American and African Studies, American Culture and History here at U of M. I'm also the chair of the Department of Afro-American and African Studies, and I've been on the faculty since 1998. My research is on African-American political and social movements, primarily in the second half of the 20th century. I have authored a book on civil rights and Black power movements in Philadelphia called Up South, Civil Rights and Black Power in Philadelphia. And I am currently working on a a second book on the history of African-American mayors in American politics in the late 20th century. So using the, using the city and the, and the office of mayor to look at how African-Americans entered American politics, American party politics, um, at both the local and national level in the late 20th century. So I think a lot about the relationship between electoral politics and political movements, and those relationships have become very much, I think, at the root of the, both the history of Black Lives Matter over the past seven years and, and very much at, at stake in what's happened in the last couple of weeks. Hopefully, thinking about these things historically, seeing the kinds of patterns can help us understand what's happening now, why it's happening now, and how it will shape politics and society in the coming months and years. This is a really interesting moment, certainly an unexpected one. And as a historian, I probably say I, I never know what's going to happen next, right? That what the future brings, but that's not our specialty. We're better looking backwards. But I do think there's, you know, there are very important historical uh, antecedents to what's happening now. And th- those are really important to understand, even as I think, as I have argued recently, that this is imp- unprecedented in scale and scope that what's happened the last past three weeks. Um, that we have not seen this level of mass participation cutting across all kinds of racial difference, encompassing the whole nation, really ever. I don't think we've seen that. But that doesn't mean that what we are seeing very much draws on those traditions of protest, and particularly the ways in which fight against racism inevitably raises a set of questions, a whole range of questions that go go beyond racism, right? So to the justice of our economic system, to the effectiveness of our political system, to the questions of human rights as they affect non-Black communities, uh, questions of of gender, gender identity, sexuality, class, all of these things become, become at stake. And the question of what, historically in American history, the question of what is a good society often, perhaps usually, begins with questions about racism and then expands beyond that. And I think we've seen kind of a confluence of those debates, and those questions over the, the past three weeks. So the, the killing of George Floyd has put at the foreground, quite obviously for everybody, the question of institutional racism, the question of cultural bias against Black people in the society that goes back to our very origins, 400 years worth. And the question of why our political uh, system can't seem to resolve these issues. These are not new issues. People have been thinking about them a long time. You know, in many ways, the Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown cases from six and seven years ago put them at the forefront of our national consciousness. And yet we've seen a political system that, that has largely ignored the question. And I think that's partly why we've seen not only huge numbers, but 
the involvement of large of groups of people, numbers of groups of people, um, young people, white people, other people of color at, at levels we haven't seen before. But it also opens up a whole other set of questions uh, about economic justice, about the nature of our, of our economic system, about the nature of our political system, that these things will be with us for a long time because of what's happened over the past month. Partly what's going on here is that people are home. <laughs> they don't have to go to work. So that means they're freer to participate in these kinds of protests. And I think that has no way denying that that's been a key role, as has their economic anxieties. And we have this unprecedented rise in the unemployment rate that has idled lots of people. And it's idled the young, it's idled the poor, uh, except for essential workers, right? So it's, it's just put, you know, people who are have grievance have the ability to participate in, in, in ways and, and also the motivation, right? There's deep concern that, that our, our economy and our political system is failing. The undeniable impact of COVID on black and brown communities, um, the disparate impact of that, of those communities, um, and the reasons for that from everything from bias within the healthcare system to uh, increased a um, tendency to live in not only more dense housing, but more lower quality housing, right? You know, whether it's, you know, access to even running water in places like Detroit and Flint. And then the fact that the essential workforce, particularly at the lower income scale and gross in the, in the food system, in healthcare, um, the most vulnerable workers also are, are disproportionately black and brown. This is quite stark. And I think it has been quite an education for the society in that sense. The murder of George Floyd could have been seen, probably previously would have been seen through the narrow window of individual bias, right? We have a tendency as a society to believe that racism exists in the individual and it's about prejudice. And when we see things like the murder of Trayvon Martin, the murder of Michael Brown, we look at those through questions of how did this bad apple, how did this biased person get in that position? And, you know, there's no more, I mean, the George Floyd video is the most stark version of that. And yet the reaction has been to focus on the larger institutional processes. And I think that is related to COVID. I do think that um, COVID has exposed the limitations of, our, of what we want the world to be, this ideal of a colorblind society right, the ideal of equal opportunity, the idea that everybody can make it, right? Because the COVID is not a biased, there's no racism in COVID, right? The virus is not biased, but the vi virus is clearly taking advantage of institutional structural bias in our society. And I think people, not everybody, lots and lots of people have been educated in that sense by that reality. And, you know, I think they've, they've hit the streets. I, not something I expected, <laughs> you know, it's both hopeful and a little daunting to see that the way people have responded. Three weeks in the streets is not going to fix the society, it's not going to fix the world. And so one wonders where, where we go from here, and how things move forward. But I do think this has been an outpouring of, of not only grief, but of outrage, right? That some of that has to do with, all of it probably has to do with that sector of, of, this, of our society that does not support the president. Right? And that's the other aspect about how polarized we are as a country as a result of the most divisive presidency in American history. And the other safety valve right, would have been belief that the political process would respond to, the, to this self-evident crisis. But it's hard for anybody to believe that that's likely 
when there's clearly no capacity of whoever you blame, there's no capacity for bipartisan action. And without bipartisan action, you don't get fundamental change, right? Because one side will block the other, at least as we've seen it in the last in the last five years. Next election may change things, but that's certainly where we are, where we are right now. And I think that's the other aspect of people going to the streets. They think, I can't wait. I, it's not enough to send an email to my, or make a phone call to a politician. It's not enough to, to write a check for a political campaign. Um, it's not enough to vote. Can't wait that long, right? I've got to act now. So how do I act now? And that's when they, people um, choose to protest. So what's consistent here is that uh, the role of young people, particularly, well, the role of all young people, but, but particularly in terms of the struggle against racism, the role of non-black young people, right? And, and white people historically, because the, the country was, was less diverse, but in other communities as well, involved in the struggle against racism, right? So there, you know, the civil rights movement, the, the support of young whites, whether in the South or in the North, was very important to that protest movement. But again, the numbers were just nothing like today, right? These were, they were much smaller numbers of people um, venturing South or going to work in poor black neighborhoods for social justice, right? They were, they were crucial, but the numbers did not compare to what we're seeing here. And the other thing is, you know, I mean, if we go back to the early 60s, right, that's the baby boom generation. So what, what the irony of that, of that era is that young people were crucial to the, the um, civil rights movement, to the anti-war movement, to the counterculture. But that's the very generation that also provides, you know, much of the votes that moves our country to the right as they get older, right, to the, to the Reagan revolution, to the shift to a more conservative national politics. And so you have a disjuncture between the young people who got involved in those social movements in the 60s and their larger generation, which tended to be more conservative as we, we saw later. So again, here's the question we see, right? Are these the same young people as before or is it broader, right? Is there a broader sense of commitment to not just racial justice, but to change, right? To changing these structures of power between, between the races. You know, and is it is it broader than if you know college students? I mean, is this something that reaches into young young people in their late twenties and and thirties to that generation as well as younger? And will they maintain those values as they get older? I think those are things we don't know. I think there's reason to believe there's a good chance that's true that there has been a kind of real shift in the understanding of race. It was easier, and still this is still true, right? That it's easy for for whites in the north to think it's a southern thing. It's not about us, right? But, you know, George Floyd is in Minneapolis, right? So there's Ferguson was in Missouri, right? So there, there, I think there is a sense that, oh, no, this is not just about something far away. And certainly we see that in the language of systemic racism, the language of, you know, of no justice, no peace, right? These are not, this is not a, seen as a Southern issue. This is a national issue. Will that mean that we'll have a generation that's committed to working for, for racial justice to working to redistribute power along racial lines in the way that, that the baby boom generation proved not to be ready to do in the way that those of us in between have not done, <laughs> right? I think I'm hopeful in the sense that that may be true, but the, the word there is may, <laughs> right? Um, confident I'm not, uh, hopeful I am. But I think one of the things we also know from history is that you know, when it's somebody else's police department, you want to change. When it's somebody else's segregation laws in the South, you want to change. 
people have one set of positions. But when it begins to hit home in their communities, when it is about where they send their kids to public school and who gets to go to those schools, and when it's they're being asked to um, uh, support housing or zoning policies that are going to make a community less wealthy, you know, people tend to put aside some of their values and vote their material self-interest, right? So that's, you know, that's the other question. In fact, the question I've asked my students in teaching these courses, which is, you know, asking essentially a hypothetical question for their final exam, which, you know, which is, are you going to choose to, to buy a house in a, in a suburban privileged community if you can afford it? Or do you choose to buy your house in an integrated, both racially and socially economically community, because those are your values? And what are the implications of that choice? And, you know, I'm going to ask it in an academic way, but it's also a question about how these are real questions we all face. And, um, you know, and I think, in fact, the nation is going to have to answer the question uh, as we move forward. First of all, we're citizens, right? We're citizens of the nation and of the world. And so, it's, you know, to, to take seriously that, that responsibility to become involved at multiple levels. And by involved, I don't mean simply politically active and you know, voting, voting every four years, but really to think about what can I do to work for greater racial justice. And whether it's at the local level in your local community, whether it's in your social world, whether it's in your, your, your religious institutions or you know, non-governmental institutions you're involved in, or, or whether it's by volunteering or, or you know, social advocacy, or whether it's you know, taking, paying attention to national policy and expressing your, your belief system there. You know, it takes a lot, it takes a fair amount of energy. You have to be involved, willing to be engaged on an ongoing basis and to believe that your contributions can make a difference. Um, and even at the level of some sacrifice of time and comfort and uh, energy. Um, so I think it's, you know, the first and most important thing is uh, members of the UN communities to think of, our, think of our role as citizens and our responsibilities as citizens. I think there's a lot of questions for you about. We have as an institution been hurt by, in terms of racial diversity, by uh, Prop 2, by the 2006 uh, statewide referendum on affirmative action. We have to, I think, think very carefully and, and work hard to think about, well, are there ways that we can make the institution more representative of the state despite that, that legal restriction? And what's our responsibility to be involved with that? And I think you know, for students, that means thinking not just about what is the institution you go to, but how could it be better? And what do you have to say? And how do you participate in efforts to make it better? Students are only with us for a brief time. Four years is, I know it feels like a long time when you start, but it's not a, it's not a huge amount of time, but that doesn't mean they don't have a particularly important role to play. And as, you know, as those of us on faculty and staff and administrative leadership, I have been very supportive and I'm very excited by President Sichel's commitment to the DEI initiative. But I, you know, I, I've said, and I've said this, I've been quoted to the saying, this essential thing that is always important to me is not simply to celebrate what we do and what we care about, but what are we going to focus on what we're not doing well and how do we do it better? And, you know, a number of students have raised questions about the LSNA race and ethnicity requirement. I feel like it doesn't directly address systematic racism in the United States sufficiently. And there are ways around it. I think that's a really important point they're making. It's really, I think, an important conversation to think about are there ways we can change the, the requirements so that it more directly addresses the, the, the contemporary situation in our country. You know, we have an extraordinary number of faculty and researchers doing really important work on these issues, right, of racial inequities in our society and racial histories of our society, healthcare disparities, everything. But we would be even better if that group of faculty was more diverse. 
right? And, if it, and we still remain underrepresented in terms of uh, African-American, uh, Latinx, and indigenous faculty. Uh, we have a lot of work to do. And, and I think we have to, well, I would hope that we would be willing to take ex extraordinary steps in that direction, right? Not simply do our best, but try to do better than our best. And if we do, we will have, have a more diverse faculty and we'll make even more of a contribution to those questions as a faculty as a department, try to find ways in this moment to both be supportive of students, whether it's through our advising system, whether it's through our staff liaison system to, to student organizations, and also to, um, we've worked hard to support each other in terms of remote teaching and, and, and resource development. We have four teaching teams that are meeting remotely uh, this summer um, to review our core curriculum, core classes, develop new resources for those classes. And, and really, to, you know, in that sense, we've been sort of taking advantage of the ways in which we're usually summer is a time for faculty research. And there's been some limitations on that research. So we've uh, kind of asked our faculty to devote a little more time to, to collective work on teaching than we usually do. And um, that's been very, I think, very exciting for us to be able to talk to each other about our teaching in a way, in a, in a little more relaxed way than during the, during the um, regular school terms. So, um, yeah, we're trying to stay in touch and, and to use this time in innovative ways that haven't been available to us before. You know, but again, I think we are all um, excited for the fall to reconnect with students uh, in the classroom, wherever that, <laughs> virtual or not, and to, you know, to, to, to hear from them and work with them to, to make sense of this extraordinary moment. Because in that sense, I think, you know, as, as, as scholars of Black studies, you know, we are surprised because we couldn't see this coming, and yet we are not surprised because, right, this is the work we do. We understand these, these structural inequities are, have been at play in our society and have been sort of avoided for, for decades. Um, so from that, from that perspective, you know, this is the moment that we knew would come or we expected would come without knowing in what form or how it would come. And so that the challenge there is to connect what we've all been through over the past month to, to this longer historical, socioeconomic, structural trends that, that we all you know, are very familiar with. Again, I think that what is most amazing, most interesting to me about this moment as, a, as, a, as an historian is the ways in which the protest movements clearly draw on uh, an understanding of how of previous eras, previous movements, the civil rights movement, the black power movement, uh, movements for um, racial change in South Africa from the 1980s and 90s, even the uh, excitement that was generated by the election of our first African-American president. And so it's as if this, the, the protesters are connecting to those traditions. Uh, and so it's, what's, you know, what's interesting is to understand how they understand the history, what they're drawing from it, what the movements are drawing from it, how they're trying to both build on and change, uh, build on those movements, but also change the things that they didn't think were so were so interesting. From a historian's perspective, one of the, you know really thinking about how history affects all of us, right, and 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 the and the central importance of really having a historical understanding um, and to apply it to to current conditions is, I think, you know, been exciting to see, uh, and it will be interesting to see how this leads us to rethink not only the present. What's going on, but also to re to rethink our own history. You know, as people were saying, we thought you know 50 years ago we had things were supposed to have changed, and they didn't. So how do we make sense of that? Um, and it's exciting to see people really grappling with that as citizens to make sense of what did change 
in the past and what, what didn't change and why that was. Thank you for listening to the Michigan Minds podcast, a production of the University of Michigan. Join the conversation on social media with hashtag UMichImpact.